Welcome to the Couch Potatoes. I'm Brett McGarry. This week, I didn't really feel like watching anything new, so I watched a bunch of old classics. At least one of those, though, the term classic is being used maybe a little generously. Plus, I'm Jeff Braun. I watched two new movies, one that aspires to be a Christmas classic called 8-Bit Christmas, and one that is destined for a lot of Oscar nominations called The Power of the Dog. We'll also tell you what's new this week on the big and small screen, starting now. There is a big show debuting on Thursday, December 9th. It is the long-awaited revival of Sex in the City. It's called And Just Like That. The more I live, the more I find that if you have good friends in your corner, anything's possible. future is unwritten because we're all at different stages of life. Tonight, bring your A-game. How many dating apps are you on? I'm just waiting for someone to create a dating site that's called Here's the Man You've Been Searching for, Seema. Sex and the City was on for six seasons from 1998 to 2004. I can't believe it's been that long since the television show was on HBO, but they did end up with two feature films, the first one in 2008 and then the sequel in 2010. There was also a prequel TV series on the CW called The Carrie Diaries, and they've been talking about it. That was in 2013, 2014. They've been talking about a sequel series for a while. They announced that series on January 11th of this year, and the series will feature, once again, Sarah Jessica Parker, Kristen Davis, and Cynthia Nixon reprising their original roles, but Kim Cattrall will not be returning. Here's another clip from the trailer. Oh, honey, I'm home. I remember when you kept your sweaters in the stove. There are always going to be roads not taken. So you can't have it all? No, you can. It's just really hard. You're not happy with who you are? Step out of that box and change! And just like that, after all the years and all the changes, You're still you. Hello, lovers. So this 10-episode revival series, the new chapter of Sex and the City, follows Carrie, Miranda, and Charlotte as they navigate the journey from the complicated reality of life and friendship in their 30s to the even more complicated reality of life and friendship in their 50s. That's just great. Good to know it's just going to get more complicated. It sucks that Kim Cattrall is not coming back as Samantha, but uh, she and Sarah Jessica Parker do not get along in real life, unfortunately. And uh, that's just that. So, yeah. They're like uh, like Vin Diesel and The Rock. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I Of all the connections, I never thought you'd make. <laughs> but, yeah, that's the perfect, the perfect description. Um, I'm excited for this. You know, I didn't watch Sex and the City when it was on in its original run, but I have I, I have not seen the entire series, but I've seen a lot of it, and I did go see both movies, 
specifically, I remember the first one. I went to a Friday afternoon matinee, so I got off work and I went straight over to the movie theater. Pretty sure I was the only guy in the theater, and I've never felt like more of a creep because I was there by myself. So all these women probably thought I was there to, I don't know, but um, yeah, I like I like the Sex in the City. What, 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 do you, I can't remember. Do you like Sex in the City? Uh, I never watched it. I, I did see the second movie, I think, oh, whichever is the one where they went, they go to Mexico or something like that, and uh, somebody drank the water and the Montezuma's Revenge kind of played a part in the <laughs> one scene or something like that. I, I recall yeah. that. from It's either in the first movie or the second movie. I saw that. I don't remember anything else about the movie. But I'm excited for the Sex and the City fans because uh, they they are very excited that this has when this was announced, so I imagine they'll just be thrilled to finally be able to lay their eyes on it, and it's always exciting, you know, when a big fan base of something, you know, gets something, gets rewarded with something, like we go on and on about Marvel movies all the time, but this is something for the Sex and the City crowd, so I I hope it's good, and I hope they all enjoy it. Yeah, I mean, I mentioned Kim Cattrall that it sucks, but uh, not to sell the others short, Sarah Jessica Parker, Kristen Davis, and Cynthia Nixon are fantastic in their roles in this show. So even though I didn't watch the original series in its entirety, I will be checking out this this one. It's just 10 episodes. Who knows if it's going to be renewed. I'm sure if it does well, they'll try to renew it. But a lot of these stars, they like to come back for the one-off and then they're done. But who knows? As the million-dollar man Ted DiBiase used to say, everybody's got a price. So if HBO says, we'll pay you more, then maybe they'll stick around. So that is debuting Thursday, December 9th on Crave on Netflix this weekend. Y la policía no está en el estanque de tormenta. Y el oro no nos vale de nada acá. ¿Lo entendés o no lo entendés, querida? Money Heist, part five, part two. <laughs> it's a, <laughs> they, that's a good title. Yeah, that's right. They, uh, I forgot that they always <laughs> call it parts, part one, part two, or is it, vol- maybe it's volume one, vol- whatever. The second half of the fifth season of Money Heist is out. It's a Spanish show. You can watch it with the English dub, but I watch it in Spanish, and uh, it's amazing. I loved this show so much. I will say the first half of this season, I didn't love it as much as its previous seasons because it was just, it was almost relentless with the action. And even though the action is great and I love relentless action, part of what's made this show so good is all of the strategy that goes into their heisting, into planning their heists. So I want to see more of, I'm hoping to see more of that in the back half of this show. But I'm excited and it's the final. This is it. Like this is money heist is done after this. So uh, I will, and I waited almost a month to watch the first half of part five. So I don't know what I was thinking there. I'm going to get on this right away. Are you ever going to watch that? I know you've got a thousand things to watch, just like I do. Yeah, but it is on the list because I really like heist uh, stuff. So it's uh, it checks a lot of boxes for me. So hopefully I will get around to it one day. Yeah, I, I've, I still got to get around to Yellowstone. Of all the shows out there, that is the show that comes up the most for people who say, hey, are you watching this? And, and, and then I have to say, no, it's on my list. I got to get caught <laughs> up. I know, I know. It gets just gets tough when once you start to fall behind. Like, what are they in season four now for Yellowstone? Yeah, and it's uh, ten hours a season, so it's 
you got like 33 hours to get caught up by the next episode. Yeah, that's a, a bit of a commitment. Also on Crave this weekend, this is fun heading into December. Why did you marry against my wishes? Because I fell in love. Fell in love with a woman as penniless as yourself. Oh, good evening. We've never had any quarrel that I've ever been party to. I ask nothing of you. I came here in the spirit of right goodwill, and I won't let you dampen it. So a Merry Christmas to you anyway, Uncle. Good evening. And a Happy New Year. Good evening. Humbug! A Christmas Carol, the 1951 classic starring Alistair Sim, seen by many as the definitive portrayal of Ebenezer Scrooge. It's my favorite portrayal of Ebenezer Scrooge, and every year when we count down our favorite Christmas movies, this movie is on the list. So that's great that it's now on Crave, because I think, honestly, I think the only copy that I own of this film, like, in our family, the family of McGarry's, is um, like a recorded version on VHS. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's not going to help you very much down the road, is it? No. Although, it's funny, because we watch that movie so often, uh, because we watched it every year, every other year for Christmas, when I first watched it, maybe I do have it on DVD or something, because I remember watching it, and it would because it didn't have the commercials, it felt weird. Like, when yes. certain scenes ended, that's where the breaks happen. You know that's where you get up and go to the bathroom or whatever, like, okay. And then to have it just carry on, I thought, whoa, what's going on here? It's also just that thing, like, like you're... Favorite song always sounds better when you hear it on the radio kind of thing. Like, I've got a Christmas story on DVD, and I never watch it. And I mean never, because I want it to just come up naturally on cable when I'm sitting around not doing anything and catch it that way, because just feels, it's just that, it's more exciting that way for some reason, you know? And it, it still is, even though we've got all this technology at our fingertips. So that's what's new this week and this weekend. By the way, nothing new worth mentioning in theaters. In a moment, though, there is a new movie on Netflix that Jeff's going to tell you about. As he mentioned off the top, could be an Oscar contender. You are listening to The Couch Potatoes. Welcome back to The Couch Potatoes. I'm Jeff, he's Brett, and an award season contender was released on Netflix this week. It's out now. Benedict Cumberbatch plays a Montana rancher in The Power of the Dog. Open up the gate, let him out. You sure he's not ready? Go on, let him out. It's just a man, Peter. Only another man. man was made by patience and the odds against him. For what kind of man would I be if I did not help my mother? Peter! If I did not save her. Sort of a lonesome place out here, Pete. Unless you get in the swing of things. Director Jane Campion, who's most famous for The Piano in the 90s. She won an Oscar for writing it. She also directed it. And uh, Holly Hunter and Anna Paquin won Oscars for that movie as well. The Power of the Dog stars Benedict Cumberbatch, like I said, as well as Kirsten Dunst, Jesse Plemons, and Cody Smith-McPhee, a young actor I thought I'd never heard of before, but he played young Nightcrawler in a few of the more recent X-Men movies, so I have definitely seen him before. The movie is set on a Montana ranch in 1925, and Cumberbatch and Plemons are brothers who own the ranch, Cumberbatch plays Phil, and he's the old crusty one. Clemens is the younger brother, George, and he's the one that uses the bathtub and combs his hair. Phil gets clean by caking himself in mud and then washing it off in the pond. There's some 
bare-bottomed cumber buns in this movie, if you're interested in that sort of thing, by the way. Um, they're very different men, but they work well together running this ranch, and the scenery is gorgeous. We were talking about Yellowstone uh, last segment. Yellowstone is set in Montana and looks great. This is five times as scenic as Yellowstone on its best day. Credit to Campion and her cinematographer, of course, but then I found out they shot this movie in her native New Zealand for budgetary reasons. Although in the LA Times interview I read, she said that they showed photos of New Zealand to her location scout who was in Montana and that person you know was fooled and thought that those photos were from Montana so I guess that part of New Zealand looks like America at any rate it's a breathtaking view in every direction at the beginning of the movie George gets married to a woman who runs a restaurant that they frequent while they're driving cattle her name is Rose and she's played by Kirsten Dunst it's art imitating life there as Dunst and Plemons are a couple in real life. Rose is a widow and has a teenage son, Peter, played by Cody Smith-McPhee. Peter is a quiet, bookish, and effeminate young man. And while he goes away to a boarding school for most of the year, he does spend the summer on the ranch. And he's not really cowboy material, so Phil and the ranch hands are bullies to him. They call him names. It's kind of miserable life on the ranch for Peter. He's also an aspiring surgeon, and he likes to practice on some of the local wildlife, which is a little disturbing. There is a disturbing vibe, actually, over quite a bit of the movie, thanks in large part to the score from Radiohead's Johnny Greenwood, who also scored several Paul Thomas Anderson movies, including There Will Be Blood. And frankly, Cumberbatch's Phil is a little reminiscent of Daniel Day-Lewis's Oil Baron from that film, uh, you know, beyond curmudgingly and just openly cruel at times, and quite menacing throughout his well, we gradually infer maybe some of the reasons, but part of it is simply that that's the nature of Montana ranchers. Kevin Costner often has a similar disposition in Yellowstone. They're interesting characters, all four of them, and the movie is quite captivating as we watch them navigate this new family arrangement. Dunst is particularly good as a woman who loves her husband and her son, but is fearful of Phil, and it's, you know, not great to live in a house with a man you're afraid of. But even while Phil is a bit of a bastard, he's also willing to try to help make a man out of Peter. He talks often of his old cowboy mentor, Bronco Henry, and we sort of get the feeling that he thinks he could be a mentor like that to Peter. And then the movie takes some surprising turns. Now, because I was watching this at home and not in the movie theater, my phone was on and my girlfriend texted me at one point and asked how the movie was. There was about 20 minutes left in it. And I said it was good. And I told her about a couple of the things in it that I liked. And then I thought, you know, I'm still not totally sure what the point of it is, though, because while it was interesting and the performances are great and the characters were developing, it, it seemed like it was shaping up to be kind of a thing where all we do is maybe learn who these folks are, but nothing really happens. And then the last 20 minutes happen. Now, obviously, I'm not going to begin to even broach what does happen. It's hard to even say that everything gets turned on its ear or anything that dramatic happens, except it kind of does. I mean, the ending just changes what you saw come before it, but also everything you saw before still stands. And I realize that doesn't make a lot of sense. You, you just got to see it. And there's this, so there's this slow burn with a tremendous payoff, but the slow burn is also a great watch, even though it may feel like there's not much plot happening. And uh, honestly, it's a Hall of Fame ending, I think. It's not big and showy like the end of The Usual Suspects, for example, but I do think it is just as clever. And I think Jane Campion deserves just a standing ovation for the tightrope she walks telling this story. Most directors would resort to shameless audience manipulation. And, you know, all movies have some sort of audience manipulation, but here it's just so subtle, and it's more about using 
our own presumptions against us. And again, you know, that'll make sense after you've seen the movie. Honestly, I think most directors wouldn't even try to make this movie because the degree of difficulty in pulling it off and doing it properly is just too high. But she did it and she did it magnificently because, you know, there's plot twists that go into all this, but it's also just visually poetic and it's just just a magic to this movie i think the power of the dog is sure to be an oscar contender and i think we may see uh benedict cumberbatch win one i think i i would say he's got to be the front runner at this point for that it's shaping up to be a good oscar season overall even just between this movie and belfast both of which are you know streets ahead of all the nominees from last year 2017 and 2019 were also both great Oscar years, so apparently we live in an era where every second year there's an amazing crop of award-worthy films. Uh, the Power of the Dog, available now on Netflix. I can't recommend it enough, and even if you're you know 90 minutes into it and you're not entirely sure what the point is, like I said, keep watching. Four and a half couch cushions out of five, Brett, for The Power of the Dog. And even sneaks in a Streets Ahead reference from the television yeah. show Community, in case you're curious to know where that... Hey, if you're not Streets Ahead, you're Streets Behind. <laughs> in a moment, we're going to tell you about a movie vying to become a Christmas classic. You're listening to The Couch Potatoes. Welcome back to The Couch Potatoes. I'm Jeff, he is Brett, and one of the many new Christmas movies out this year is a lot like an old Christmas classic. Let's talk about Crave's 8-Bit Christmas. Every kid has that one gift they want more than anything for Christmas. This is the story of mine. Bookends? They have baseballs on them. I see that. No, not those. Nintendo. A maze of rubber wiring and electronic intelligence so advanced it was deemed not a video game, but an 8-bit entertainment system. No Nintendo in my house. I second that. Looks like a no-go on Nintendo. I needed a Christmas miracle. 8-Bit Christmas follows an 11-year-old boy in the lead-up to Christmas 1988, where all he wants is a Nintendo Entertainment System. He's obsessed with getting one, and will go to great lengths to do so. And if it sounds a lot like the movie A Christmas Story, in which a young boy spends the lead-up to Christmas 1950-something scheming to get a Red Ryder BB gun, it's because it is. I don't think it's technically a remake. But I don't think anyone would really uh, give you a lot of guff for calling it that. The hero of this movie is Jake Doyle. The movie is told by a flashback narrated by adult Jake, who's played by Neil Patrick Harris, as you may have guessed from the clip. He's telling the story of how he got his Nintendo to his daughter. It's 1988. Nintendo, of course, is all the rage, but they were a little pricey at the beginning, and in Jake's Chicago suburb, there's actually only one kid who has one, and this kid is a jerk that nobody likes, but they all line up outside his house anyway, hoping that They'll be invited inside to play with him. And then with Christmas approaching, Jake and his friends, of course, are all hoping that one of them will get a Nintendo for Christmas so they don't have to suffer the abuse from this other kid. And there are shenanigans and parents that don't want their kids wasting their time with video games, worried their brains will turn to mush, and other complications standing in Jake's way. And like I said, a lot of it is comparable to a Christmas story, just, you know, a few decades later. None of it, however, I'm sad to say, is as good as a Christmas story. The narration, I think, is the real killer in that department because the Christmas story narrator is the guy who wrote the book in real life and whose life story, you know, it's all based on. He's got stakes in it, and his narration is wildly emotive all the way through. It's literally one of the best pieces of narration in a movie I've ever heard that didn't involve Morgan Freeman. Neil Patrick Harris, you know, he's uh, pretty bland all of the way through this, although he does pick it up a bit towards the end. 
Eight Big Christmas, you know, also has a bully that the kids have to contend with, like a Christmas story, but he's no match for Scott Farkas and his yellow eyes. There are other several comparisons you could make, but you can see for yourself if you watch it. I will say this movie does differentiate itself enough by the end that it doesn't feel like it's just a ripoff of a Christmas story. And even if it is, it's not really that big a deal. Every generation has a similar story. In 20 years, we'll get a movie about a kid trying to get a Furby or a Tickle Me Elmo or something. Um, I will say, you know, at the beginning, I wasn't really feeling good about this movie. Besides the fact that it was pandering to my sense of 80s nostalgia like so many things of recent years it was pretty dry and clunky at the beginning but it did grow on me as the movie went along and it may have even brought a tear to my eye by the end the 80s stuff was you know fun at times especially when neil patrick harris is trying to explain it to his daughter he's lying to her telling her that all the kids wore bike helmets all the time in the 80s when, of course, none of us did. Things like that. There's also a joke about attention deficit disorder that made me laugh out loud, even though it probably shouldn't have. The joke isn't about ADD itself, but some of the parents' reaction to it. Besides Neil Patrick Harris and a bunch of kids, the movie also stars Steve Zahn and June Diane Raphael as Jake's parents in the 80s. And comedian David Cross as a black market toy dealer. He's their go-to to find a Cabbage Patch kid for Jake's sister. Now, is it destined to become a Christmas classic, 8-Bit Christmas? Impossible to say this early, but I doubt it. It is at 78% on Rotten Tomatoes, which is better than I would have thought, actually. But again, there are always a lot of new Christmas movies every year now, so it's a much different playing field than it was years ago. And becoming a true Christmas classic is always, it's incredibly unlikely. I mean, this century, I think there's two, Elf and Love Actually, I would say, of the true Christmas classics of the last 20 years, and they're both from 2003. There have been other good ones, but I don't think anything that'll end up on top 20 all-time Christmas movie lists like those do. I, I, I'd probably vote for Bad Santa, but I don't think that'll make it for a lot of other people. That was also in 2003, so clearly there was a push for Christmas movies that year, and I would suggest maybe 9-11 and A Pair of Wars had something to do with that. Only time will tell, though, where 8-Bit Christmas ends up, but if you were a kid in the 80s, it is worth checking out. It's a decent watch, if not the greatest Christmas movie of all time. I will give 8-Bit Christmas three couch cushions out of five, Brett. Yeah, it, becoming a Christmas classic is so tough, and especially now when you think about the fact that uh, you've got the Hallmark Channel and you can watch mm -hmm. all those movies on every... They're putting out new movies every Friday, Saturday, Sunday on the W Network, so they make... They're like a Christmas movie factory and... Yeah. I don't think, I think they realize that none of them are going to become classics. Like this is very much disposable weekend entertainment. It's become this industry where people very shamelessly love these movies. But when you're sort of carpet bombed by, <laughs> by Christmas movies every year, it's hard for one to stand out. But as far yeah. as Elf goes, um, that one I think might, and depending where you look, like uh, it is at the top of a lot of lists in terms of the, like the most favorite, the most popular people's favorite Christmas movie of all time. And I would, it's I usually, no, you go ahead. I was just going to say when I first watched Elf, I didn't care for it. It's taken repeated viewings to, to come around on it. And I never, I didn't even watch it for the first 10 years it was out. I don't think. Uh, but now it's it is the one that I definitely watch at least once every year. I usually watch it end up watching it three times a year because if it's on, I just leave it on. Even if I'm puttering around the house, just leave Elf on on the, in the background. Uh, my dad hates 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 Will Ferrell with a passion, but he enjoyed it. But he enjoyed Elf. So there you go. I've heard that as well from other people that they don't care for Will Ferrell's common shtick 
but they liked him more in Elf. And uh, the weirdest thing about that movie is seeing Zoe Deschanel, who we know and love from New Girl, yeah, in blonde hair. Yeah, every time it's like, oh right, the hair. Oh my god, it's like, yeah, because it's you're right. It's it's jolting every single year, even though we've seen it so many times. Yeah, and that, that, that's not a criticism. It, it, she looks nice in the blonde hair. She looks nice in the brunette. But every time I, I see it, I I always forget that it's her initially, and then it's kind of the, that blah. Hey, that's new girl. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, as for this 8-bit Christmas, though, you must have had a Christmas where all you wanted was a Nintendo. I know I, we got a Nintendo one Christmas. It was probably 91, I think, 90 or 91. And that was a big deal then. So as far as the 8-bit Christmas movie goes, I really do get where they're coming from on this one, more even more so than a Christmas story where the kid wants a BB gun. I think it might have been 1988 for me for the Nintendo. And boy, oh boy, when I got that thing... I was so pumped because I didn't, I didn't think, I don't remember if I even asked for one. I think I just thought there's no way that I'm going to get one. Yeah. I, although, you know, I, I must have asked for it. I must have asked for it because I was a greedy little brat. <laughs> so I'm sure I would have asked for the Nintendo Entertainment System, but I have. Hey, get I, my sister one too so we don't have to share. I definitely monopolized the television for the rest of the day. My parents were quite patient with me with that. Um, and yeah, many of my, uh, one of my favorite video or favorite Christmas gifts ever after the Nintendo was, I think it was a couple of years later when I got Super Spike V-Ball on for Nintendo. And they, they kind of, they did the Christmas story thing where, you know, he, his dad hides the gun off in the corner. He thinks that he's opened all of his yeah. presents. It's all done. He doesn't have the gun. And he says, hey, what's that over there? So my mom did that. I, that was the, the, I had this one Christmas where I got everything I wanted. It was amazing, but I didn't get the game, and my mom could tell it was sad. So she <laughs> says, hey, look over there. Why don't you just, what's, what's that in the tree? And she had, I don't know when she did it. It might have been there the whole morning, but she managed to, she wrapped the game and stuffed it into the tree and uh, very excited. And I still play that game. That's amazing. <laughs> That's amazing. That's pretty good. That's the best uh, gift fake out we had in our house was my dad bought my mom a bread maker and he hid a piece of jewelry in it and he didn't tell her. And we were done Christmas <laughs> and she was sulking that all she got was a an appliance. She was, so, she's like, and she finally said after, she's like, you seriously just got me a bread maker? And he let her stew for like an hour, seeing her sulking there. And then he's like, he's like, well, why don't you, why don't you open it up and make us a loaf of bread? And then, and then like, and so I'm, I'm surprised she actually opened it up and didn't just throw it at him. But uh, she opened it up and then there was the ring inside or whatever. And yeah, Christmas was fun again. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that is good stuff. In a moment, I got to tell you about the four movies. I went down a bit of a time-traveling rabbit hole over the last week and watched four of what I think I could say are some of my favorite movies. You're listening to The Couch Potatoes. I'm Brett. He's Jeff. We are The Couch Potatoes. I mentioned off the top of the show, I didn't really feel like watching anything new this week. Like, I did watch a couple of things. I watched Dexter, New Blood, and I watched Succession, but otherwise I just felt like kind of hunkering down and watching some old movies or older movies. Not Nothing relatively recent and given that i did recently watch that rocky four sort of update rocky versus drago the ultimate director's cut i've had rocky on the mind and i thought you know what i'm gonna finally because i recorded it months ago I, I i don't even know when i recorded this but it was sitting there on my pvr from 2015 creed 
not built for this. These boys come in here, they gotta fight for life. People die in the ring. Your daddy died in the ring. I don't know him. I ain't got nothing to do with me. So Michael B. Jordan stars as Adonis Johnson in Creed. Sylvester Stallone returns as Rocky Balboa to help Apollo Creed's son go from being a good fighter to a great fighter. And what a great movie that I think both of the Couch Potatoes can agree. Sylvester Stallone got absolutely hosed at the Academy Awards. He was nominated for Best Supporting Actor. He was thought to be the lock, but he did not win that year, Jeff. He absolutely got hosed on that. He lost to uh, Mark Rylance from the Tom Hanks and Steven Spielberg movie Bridge of Spies, which is a fantastic movie, and Rylance gives a wonderful performance in that movie. But no, Stallone definitely deserved the Oscar that year. He had won the Golden Globe. I remember seeing him on the red carpet at the Oscars. They were interviewing him, and he was just so thrilled to be here to be there and he and he was talking about oh I get to meet like uh, Kate Blanchett and then you know they interviewed Kate Blanchett and she's like oh my god I got to meet Sylvester Stallone so people were more excited to see him at the Oscars than even he was excited to be there and then Mark Rylance ruined his night yeah and it was probably his probably his last chance he's already like it, Rocky is a best picture winner but uh, since then um, he has not returned to that kind of glory. And it was su- just watching it again. The performance was so, so good in that first Creed. Not to suggest the second movie is bad, because I also watched Creed 2. Victor Drago, son of Ivan Drago, who infamously killed Apollo Creed, appeared today to issue a challenge to Adonis Creed. Don't do this. I ain't got a choice. That's the same thing your father said, and he died right here in my hands. That kid was raised in hate. It's dangerous. He broke things in me that ain't never been fixed. It ain't worth it. If he dies, he dies. So, Creed 2, we see Adonis take on... Ivan Drago's son, Victor Drago. And this movie, I thought, this movie's not going to be good. Um, This is going to be the classic where the first movie, Creed, is great, and the sequel is just kind of fan service or cheese ball or whatever. And it was really, really good. It kind of advances the Drago saga in a touching way, and the boxing is tremendous. The guy that got to play, Victor Drago, is a monster of a man, Florian Montiano. So, uh, yeah, Creed 2 is great. It is on Netflix. Another movie I watched, going back a little bit further here to 1994, because a buddy of mine says, hey, when did they add this to Prime Video? I said, I have no idea, but I got to watch The Crow. Suddenly, I heard a tapping, as of someone gently rapping, rapping at my chamber door. You heard me rapping, right? The movie in which Brandon Lee famously was shot and killed on set in uh, just a mishap, a tragic mishap. But this film, for all intents and purposes, this is the first time that I have seen The Crow. I've watched it several times, but I've watched it several times on VHS. And this is one of the darkest movies. Not, I mean, it's its content is dark, but it's actually like visually dark. It's hard to see 
details and stuff, especially on crappy VHS quality. So to see it in HD on my big screen TV, I was just blown away. I was like, what is happening here? I don't remember a lot of these details, probably because I just simply could not see them. But uh, what a great movie. It doesn't have the best reviews. Uh, and, and I think it's when I say it's a great movie, probably in the, there's a very much a sentimentality there, like I saw it when I was a teenager. And Brandon Lee's performance, the mixture of fury, but gentleness that it, it just, it's so good. And it was such a, just to see his career and his life cut short like that, just awful. Uh, but The Crow is available on Prime. And while it was on Prime, I also saw that they had this. For centuries, the Society of the Black Dragon has sanctioned an ancient rite of combat known as the Kumite. Open only to the world's most lethal warriors. It has never been won by a Westerner. You are not Japanese. I can do it. Now, for from 1988, Jean-Claude Van Damme stars in Bloodsport. What an awful movie. <laughs> this is a bad <laughs> movie, but I love it so, so much. You, have you seen Bloodsport? I saw Bloodsport many times as a younger man when it was you know, on VHS and that sort of thing. I have not seen that in decades. I would like to give it a look again. You do every now and then see something on just across your social media feed, a little video or a photo of uh, like modern day jcvd and uh bolo young who played the bad guy chong lee in that movie because yep. they're good friends in real life and uh i enjoy it. that uh, warms my heart every time i see it that's cool and they this is a movie that i will forever enjoy very much like rocky four because i loved it when i was a kid and even though i can acknowledge this is a silly movie that probably doesn't really hold up very well who cares it's cool the music's great it's got jean-claude van damme and it's awesome. Bloodsport, you can watch that on Prime. That's all the time we've got. I'm Brett. He's Jeff. We are the Couch Potatoes. And remember, if it requires getting up off the couch, don't bother. <laughs>